And I'd love to hear your definition of what intentional means. I would say operating from clarity and values. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Alrighty, everybody, we are back with another interview and a topic that is so timely, relevant, and crucial to growing value with the end in mind. And I have a guest that just jam packs the value in this conversation. But before I jump into it, a quick reminder that we have an intentional growth boot camp coming up in Orlando, Florida on May 11th and 12th. And there is room for 25 entrepreneurs and leaders. And it's based on the five intentional growth principles. So you can view and run the company like a financial asset. And we really dive into the two case studies of Summit and Jordan, leveraging the five principles. And the three big takeaways that you're going to have is how to identify what you want from the business and why using the five principles. The second thing is that you're going to be able to clarify the target equity valuation that you want at a point in time and the income that you want on the way there so you have as many choices to monetize the asset or transition your role when and however however you want, whether it's an ESOP, private equity, third-party sale. You're going to understand how to clearly identify that outcome and what you're going to have to do to go get it. And then the third takeaway is that you're going to have the resources to think through how you want your leadership role to evolve on the way to that target equity valuation so you can create as many choices and truly make the journey of being an entrepreneur and leader worth it. And now on to my guest today, who is Casey Brown. She's the president of Boost Pricing, the nation's leading pricing consulting firm. And Casey's background just tees her up to have such an interesting approach to this topic. She has degrees in chemical engineering, Spanish and business, and her career prior to Boost She had experience in engineering, Six Sigma, and she worked on pricing strategies for multiple Fortune 500 companies. And over the last two and a half decades, she's been working with middle market entrepreneurs and leaders on their pricing so they can get the pricing that they deserve for the value that they're bringing. And over the decades, Casey has been doing countless keynote speeches for industry associations, conferences. She was one of the speakers at the EOS Worldwide Conference, and her TEDx talk about pricing has over 5 million views on all the different platforms. And what we're going to be talking about today is Casey's going to be sharing how to discover your true pricing power and the value that you deliver so you can determine when and how much to increase your prices without, and here's the big caveat, without the anxiety and fear that most of us have when we think about this topic, and it's especially relevant in today's current environment with everything that's going on, and I loved this conversation because I have struggled with this issue most of my entrepreneurial career as well, because my first business was a commodity, so our way of Pricing strategies, we can beat the competitor by 10%, which trust me, Casey's going to get into this. And then over the last almost 10 years, I've been working on the product pricing fit of Arcona, which again, Casey talks about startups and how the product pricing fit uh, works into this uh, concept as well. I just know that this topic is on everybody's mind right now with inflation and all the interest rate issues. And regardless of the current environment, this is still relevant if we want to accomplish our long-term goals of growing equity value and increasing our cash flow and distributions on the way to that equity valuation. So 
I know you're going to love this conversation with Casey. Without further ado, here is Casey Brown from Boost Pricing. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace. And you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the, the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Casey, how are you? Great. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I was just saying, I'm so excited for this conversation because I've heard your name come up multiple times in the Vistage circuits, as well as uh, my buddy Jimmy Fritz, thank you, and Kurt Thario, thank you, who have you've presented to the Allied crew and community quite a few times about mm-hmm. pricing. Yeah. And my guess is, just like what I've seen, is your topic is kind of top of mind these days. <laughs> Like, what should we be doing? And I think it should have always been top of mind, but now I don't think people have the choice but to address it. So why don't you just give us a little bit of your background, kind of like the brief bio. I'm going to do a little intro in in advance, but then we can unpack all the stuff that you're here to talk about. Sure. That's great. Yeah. So I uh, run a company called Boost Pricing and we help organizations discover their true pricing power, uh, operate from a place of confidence, not fear. The, the reality is that we find that most companies, most sellers, most salespeople, anybody in the selling seat, most of those decisions are made from fear, not confidence. So we're pricing not to lose rather than pricing to win. And so our organization leads training and development programs to help uh, companies uh, improve that. Um, make make courageous uh, 
price increases, masterful at handling price objections, fearless in, in communicating value and, um, and making price a very secondary factor. So that's kind of the what I do now and the team I run. How I got here, as far as the quick bio, is a bit of a winding road. Uh, I, I don't remember ever uh, a pricing consultant coming in for career day in middle school, right? Like I, I did not even know this was a career option. I basically thought my choices were fireman, artist, teacher, veterinarian, uh, microbiologist. So <laughs> I was, uh, I, this was not a plan. In other words, I didn't set out to be what I am. I'm an engineer by training. Uh, and I was in Six Sigma. I was an early Six Sigma black belt for GE the first time I came across pricing. And uh, I love the discipline. I find it to be an, a fascinating intersection of art and science, people and process, data and psychology. I think that uh, you know, if you ever read a econ textbook or took an econ class, pricing is presented in this very sort of mathematical kind of mm-hmm. clinical fashion. Like there's a simple apply demand curve. If you charge more, you sell less. If you charge less, you sell more. But the real world's very different than that. It's uh, pricing's you know mysterious. There's a lot of bluffing. It's more like poker. You know, uh, it's it's this sort of sexy discipline to make a lot more money. And I agree with one of your opening comments, which is we should have always been focused more on it. But yeah, it's getting a lot more attention these days. Yeah. So that's that's the short version of how I ended up where I, where I am with price. Oh, that's awesome, Casey. I appreciate that. that and, and just even how you opened that up, if people aren't hooked because of how you describe that, it's like a motivational speech. Like, yes, who doesn't want that? And I talk about psycho- the intersection. Of, I love how you said the intersection of psychology and data. I mean, I mean, I think we don't have to go on this rabbit hole, but like Yellen and Powell have really figured out that it's not just a Bloomberg terminal. There's a bunch of human beings that are not independent agents doing rational things all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> and that, that's the, that's fascinating because there's, a, you know, tons of research that is very compelling from the fields of things like behavioral uh, economics and things like that. But, you know, this it's based on this assumption of, of rational, you know, rational behavior, which we know from neurochemistry and psychology that emotions drive our decisions a lot, just as much, if not more than rational factors. And then you add in the, the kind of totally unforeseen set of circumstances that any model would not do a good job of predicting an outcome on in the form of a global pandemic, uh, a war in Ukraine causing crazy impact on the energy um, sector, uh, supply chain interruptions, this insane inflation, and all that happening all at the same time on top mm-hmm. of a labor uh, labor shortage um, and a war for talent. I, I think that it's very, it's time to step away from, it's like, I, I, you know, I say this as an Excel lover and a, and a mm-hmm. ex- spreadsheets are my jam. I love numbers. I'm an engineer after all, but it's time to close the spreadsheet and go, mm-hmm. you know, belly up to the conversation to ask for your value. I I love it so much. And I, I love it from my career as a salesperson, as a, as a like operational leader and as an entrepreneur, and also as a consultant helping people with their numbers. Cause it, like you can't engineer human beings into doing things, but like what I find super fascinating and, and I want to get into kind of the how and how you've learned all this. But before I'm curious, before I do that is how, like when you're at GE, like what about the pricing hooked you? Cause I watched your, I watch your YouTube videos and stuff like that. And you have a passion for what you do, kind of like what I do. And it, there's some, I'm curious of why do you get so passionate about it? Like, what is it about pricing and what, um, the power of pricing that gets you so excited every day? 
Well, uh, that's a bit of a, that was a bit of a journey. So initially I think it was just a little bit of the awareness of what I described, which is, it's not that simple. It's not as simple as it appears on paper. Um, and you know, I made this very quick allusion to, to poker. Uh, and I, I, I'm not a, a poker player. Uh, I've played it a couple of times. So this is not my sport, but I'm a student of like life. And I, mm-hmm. I find the very interesting, the success of a poker player Certainly the cards they're dealt is part of it, but how they play the game is is a mm-hmm. huge predictor in their in their success. And so the the reason I like that analogy for pricing is I think it's exactly the same. I think that we are all, whether you're on the buyer seller side of the table, you have a you have your hand to play, right? And I think that um both sides are bluffing. Everybody's trying to hide the truth. Sellers are trying to hide how little they're willing to accept. Buyers are trying to hide how much they're willing to pay. And everybody's looking at their cards and trying to judge the strength of their hand. And uh, across decades of specializing in this work, I've seen sellers fold over and over and over again because they buy into the illusion that the buyer has the better hand. And so some of the early interest I got in this area, in this in this field was because of just identifying or seeing the dynamic mm-hmm. I just described play out in sales conversation after sales conversation. Uh, but why the, the evolution has been that when we really started uh, and at the time, it was just me. This is before I had a team and I was a solopreneur. When I started really focusing on and helping to address the the mindset limiters, the self limiting beliefs, the emotions, the habits, the attitudes uh, of the of the seller. In other words, the, what I would call the head trash, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, stuff between their ears. When yeah. we address those things by sort of pulling back the curtain on customer uh, tactics and then arming the the seller with the uh, methods and tools and messaging, but most importantly, the confidence to negotiate from a place of strength and power, not fear, that margins directly rose as a result. Uh, nothing mm-hmm. improved about the quality of their products and services or their lead time or their website messaging or anything else. It was strictly the belief that I can. Mm-hmm. Henry Ford says, if you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right. And I That's have so seen true. that. And, and I have, I've, I never <laughs> stopped being amazed, mystified, humbled, and gratified to be part of bringing some ideas to people to help them shift their paradigm in their own pricing power. And they walk mm-hmm. out of our, our work or any other, you know, anybody else that does the kind of work we do. And now they're charging more and customers pay them more. They're not yeah. worth more. They were always worth it. It's sort of like, a, you know, Dorothy could always go home. She always had the ruby slippers, right? We just, she mm-hmm. just had to go on that journey to discover it. It's the same mm-hmm. with pricing. So oh, I, I, I guess I'm just, if I can add one more thing, I am powerfully motivated yeah. uh, by the mission to help people that are great at what they do get paid like they're great. If you're excellent, if you deliver excellent products and services and you ought to be paid like you're excellent, not like you're good and certainly not like you're mediocre. And I come across as the sort of stratum of companies I work with or that we work with are, you know, small and medium sized privately held companies. They're not the Coca-Colas of the world, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. you're talking about somebody who has, I don't know, 40 employees. And if they're more profitable, now they're paying profit sharing you know, to their employees, or they're able to hire someone. You're talking about real families and communities impacted because you're talking about people's paychecks. It's a very satisfying thing to be part of mm-hmm. planting a couple seeds that transform the profitability of an organization and seeing how that affects the people that work there. It, it, that's so awesome, Casey, because like, and that, that makes your answer makes sense because I watch your passion and it's, it's a bigger mission and pricing is how you're doing it. And like, honestly, it's very similar. Like I, I could switch a couple words. Like with me, it's like, it's the value of the business where like, it's not about trying to make a private equity firm have another, you know, percent of an IRR. It's truly to make it worth 
it for the entrepreneur who's taking all the risk. And there's so much head trash like you're talking about. It's just ridiculous. And so I want to, maybe we can kind of take this conversation. I was kind of thinking about how to do this is from the, from the buyer's perspective, just real quick, and then talk about from like the sales person's perspective, yeah. and then maybe from the owner's perspective. And I was thinking of starting with, in one of your videos on your website, you were, you were asking the people in the audience, you were kind of playing the, the devil's advocate of the seller. I can't remember how you're doing that because it's trying to, you know, uh, what's like kind of shift their mindset of like, Hey, the seller you do this too as a seller. I can't remember 100%. how you did that. Yeah, yeah, I can uh, I can summarize that uh, relatively quickly. I think so. I talk about in in my keynote speeches, and our team addresses this in our training programs. Um, the idea that it is the human condition to try to hold on to our resources. So, in other words, it is every human on the planet wants to save money, conserve their resources so that they can feed themselves and their children, or pay for their employees, or do whatever. Right. So, the idea that people want as as buyers, that buyers want our stuff for less should not surprise anyone. It's not insulting. It's not hurtful. Nobody's out to get you. Price objections will continue until the end of commerce because we're human beings and human beings want to show up and save money. That is the backdrop for the, the exercise that you've seen in the video that I'm described that I'm about to describe here, which is customers have developed over the history of humanity, a series of buying tactics and negotiating strategies to get our stuff for less. And we start this at birth. I mean, anybody who's ever negotiated with a toddler knows they are master negotiators, right? So getting our way is the human condition. So here they come into this buyer-seller engagement and they, they want what we sell. They're going to buy it from someone. Why not from us, right? But we are sure we're looking at our hand and it's got twos and threes and they have a full house. We get very afraid, right? But the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the customer is going to buy, you know, from us. Maybe they've already decided. I, you know, I one of the questions that I ask in that exercise is I, I say, how many of you would think that there's ever been a case in, in the history of selling for your company that you've discounted to a customer that's already made up their buy, mind to buy from you? And the hands all go up. And then, you know, what we talk about there is that we have sometimes decided to discount to a customer that already knows that we're the, the only one that can solve their technical problem or meet their creative vision or can get it done on time or the other guy's a jerk or we're already the lowest price, but, you know, can't hurt to ask. So I talk about want this as one of very many tactics. Can't hurt to ask, club as I call it, is one of very many tactics our customers use to get our stuff for less. What they're doing in this particular case is just projecting a volume threat where none exists. Mm. They say mm-hmm. something like, if you match this competitor's price, I'll buy from you. Otherwise, I'm going with them. And mm-hmm. that is, to be perfectly blunt, plenty of times not very true or not true at all. It's a it's a it's a tactic. I won't call it a lie because I think that in you know can hurt to ask like you said. And then I say to everyone in the audience, how many of you have ever done this? Buying something on Facebook Marketplace or a garage sale or a car lot or and all the hands go up. And then I say, how many for how many of you has that ever been an effective tactic? Has it ever worked? All the hands go up. And then I say, how many of you were prepared to make the purchase even if they didn't discount to you? And all the hands go up. And yet we forget this entirely when we're on the seller side. We forget what it's like to be a buyer when we sell. And so I I connect the obvious dots at that point, which is your customers do this to you. They do it every day. It happens in every industry, B2B, B2C, B2G, nonprofits, good services, $1 deals, $1 billion deals. It happens everywhere because it works and it costs your customers nothing to do to you. It's right there in the name. Can't hurt to ask. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of different tactics, but I think that's one that is uh, universally accessible to our audiences. 
It, it, I, I love that place of starting because it puts us all into a, a, a position of we're empathetic because we understand what the other side's doing. Right. But then I want to go, like, like as I said, then into the sales or marketing perspective before that, when I get, when we get to the operations of the company, I think there's a whole different conversation that I'm excited about, but the, the sales persons, like when I was watching your material, I'm like, holy shit, do I remember this? I mean, before you even start about the head trash, Casey, when I started my career in copier sales, I mean, it was the, it was the uh, Jeffrey Gittimore, the Sandler sales, and I've got the mirror up in my cube, like, Ryan, you're a good person. Everybody's going to call you an asshole today and they're going to pound your face in. And I'm just in that you just get the shit kicked out of you for an entire day while you're pretending to smile at yourself because you think you're a worthy human being. Yeah. And it's like, but like even the most confident person has that. Yeah. But then you talk about like coming from a, 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 a space of confidence, which is just this crazy like leap of faith. There's no, I, I don't know how else to describe it from my yeah. perspective then. If I pretend that I'm confident and say no, then they, it actually happens. But I'm scared to absolute death. Yeah, am I am I on track here? Because oh, I mean, yeah. how do you? I mean, <laughs> for sure. And I think that um, it, so there's a lot there. There's a, you know because mindset. Well, maybe just take the headspace. Yeah, take the headspace. Yeah. yeah, I mean mindset and our beliefs and our fears and how we show up in sales conversations are incredibly important in predicting our success. And I always say dogs and prospects can smell fear. So uh, in absence (laughs) of confidence, I am a fan of the kind of the approach you described, which is a little bit of a fake it till you make it. But, um, but the, the work that, that I'm on this mission to do around the world is to convince people that it's not fake that there's absolutely a reason for authentic confidence. And, you know, a way I would, you know, some of the questions that I would, I would plant in the seeds of, of any audience, including those listening to this podcast are, do you solve a real problem for your customers? Do you provide excellence in the form of your products and services? Do you, do you wrap excellence around them? Do you, do you take great care of your customers and their needs? If so, I invite you to consider that you have more power than you think. They're going to buy these products and services from someone. Why not from you? Don't you believe in what you sell? And occasionally, I'll be very honest, I run into someone who does not believe in what they Mm -hmm. sell, in which case pricing Mm -hmm. isn't their problem. They have a value issue. They have a quality issue. They have something they have to fix before they can go ask for more. But if you are best in class or better in class, then virtually every company, maybe every company in that space has some pricing opportunity that is Ex- exclusively limited by their own beliefs. Mm-hmm. And and the, uh, the so when you think about as a salesperson going in there having that confidence perspective, I I, I find it the the challenge if when I was a salesperson or like when I watch other people, it, the quality thing is absolutely there, right? Like if, if they're if they're not able to deliver what they're promising, that sucks. There's nothing worse as a salesperson. But I think the opposite, like it, like when you go in with that confidence, what like how do you? Uh, it, it's the scarcity. I mean, we, and when we were doing our sales, there was a sales consult we brought in and like we had 22 sales reps and it was the MSU making shit up. If I don't get this sale, then I'm not going to hit my quote. And if I don't hit my quota, then I'm not going to hit my bonus. If I don't have my bonus then I'm not going to get my money. And by the way, my kids are going to starve and then I'm going to be on the street. And all that happens in like one second. hundred percent. How do you start attacking how to shift that narrative? Well, I, I think it's an excellent question. And I will uh, say that 
I'll start that by teeing up what I see happening in the mind of the seller when a customer comes and says something like, you know, so-and-so down the street for do it for this price. If If you'll match their price, I'll buy from you. If not, I'm going with them, right? In other words, this thing I said before, which is, Project a volume threat where none exists. And in the in the mindset of the buyer, what happens is, you know, this whole thing about, hey, I really want these guys. I know they're the right ones to solve my problem, but it can't hurt to ask, right? What's in the mindset of the seller is, oh, I don't know, you know, uh, 100% of 30 margins better than 0% of 40. And, um, you know, I'm having kind of a soft month and my boss is on my butt and I missed my numbers last month. And, and we start to kind of catastrophize as you're kind of describing, and it can go very far into like, really fast. Sudden, you know, I'm homeless begging for nickels on the street. Right. <laughs> I mean, we go very far with that. And one of the, one of the exercises that I like a lot, we have a, it's available for free on our website and I can send the link to you after we hang up too, but, um, is a, is a calculator that you can sort of run some what if scenarios. I believe that one of the most powerful ways to dispel fear, and this, by the way, is not just in pricing, but it certainly works in pricing, is to be very, very specific about what you actually think is going to happen, right? To your point, they go from, oh my gosh, this customer's asking for a better deal to I'm going to be homeless in one second. And like very, very, and I'll I'll tell you a quick story that isn't about pricing Mm -hmm. on this. When I was thinking of starting my company, I wanted to become an entrepreneur. I had all these reasons to believe I could do it and would be successful. But I was a single mom of two little girls, and I was really scared of, of failure because I'm a single mom of two little girls, right? And so um, I, I put it off for a long time, and then finally someone asked me that question. Very specifically, what do you think could happen? Well, I could fail. Okay, and then what would happen? Well, then I would you know, probably go into a little bit of debt, and then what would happen? And the, the worst thing that could happen, as it turns out, is I would have to go get another crappy job which I already had and was trying to quit, <laughs> right. right? So, yeah, right, so right. I think it's a little bit of an effort, and this can be analytical or, or sort of mm-hmm. qualitative, but to bound the risk, bound mm-hmm. the fear and say, if the worst thing happens, what's this really look like? The, and, and often that can look like doing some of those profit trade-offs of if I lose 5% of my volume, but my margins are X percent higher. And I mm-hmm. think that can, that can give salespeople, sales leader, business owners, starch in the back to say, well, we're not going to shoot. We're not going to lose 15% if we ask for five. So we're going to be slightly smaller, but much more profitable. And, mm. and I don't believe, by the way, this is really important for me to say, I don't believe it's necessary to lose volume if you hold the line on price or ask for more. I think you can do uh, both things. You can grow and grow margins, grow volume and margins at the same time through very surgical and strategic application of good pricing strategy. But in, in absence of perfection in that regard, it's one of those mm-hmm. things like, it's just a confidence play to take a look mm-hmm. at that math and say, you know, it's like, if you're afraid of the monster under the bed and you won't get out of bed because you're afraid of that monster and it's going to, I'm like, grab a flashlight, look under there. How sharp are the claws? How big are the teeth? Yep. How many warts yep. does it have? If it's not that bad, then, then you, um, then that can give you the confidence to proceed. Wait, what you're referring to is actually in uh, clinical psychology is actually exposure therapy. Like you, it's actually like you Do actually, like yeah. if you're, yeah, if you're afraid of the elevator, we're going to, can you look at it? Yeah. Like, and then I'll over time, you you're event- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. eventually you're right. going to get in, but it, okay. Well, awesome. Awesome. Go, no, go for it. Oh, yeah. I just have one more point to add to this, which is, um, and I, this is a point that resonates immediately with sales leaders and business leaders. I know that salespeople get it, but I think that, um, it's not, as immediately effective to get over the fear with this, this particular point. But the reality 
that salespeople or businesses are considering when they're contemplating either not offering a concession when someone comes along and pushes on them that way or asking for a price increase or whatever that looks like. Their two alternatives that they are weighing are I'm, you know, I'm here with all this volume and I'm going to lose volume. So there's a risk of loss and they're evaluating their current position against the risk of loss. And that drives a lot of people not to take action, not to hold the line, not to raise prices. And I would say that you are already living every single day, the realized risk of the status quo, which is too low of pricing. So the, mm-hmm. you know, the, in other words, the measurement of the gap of the difference is the wrong measurement. The fact that you're already, you know, letting, you know, depending on the size of your company, $10,000, $100,000 a month of unrealized profitability, walk out the door and sit in your customer's bank account. You're living that risk. Yeah. So I I think it makes it a little bit more What's the first thing they'll do when you're digging a hole? (laughs) Stop digging. Stop digging. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And and, and, and that actually, I'm looking at my notes here is like you had mentioned in like the two things is when and how much. And it's so, as you were describing that is when do you increase the prices and then how much? And it's really interesting with recurring revenue too, because if you pull that forward, if you pulled someone that's got a monthly recurring revenue and you just pulled that forward three months, you have so much more. And it's the same thing that goes with the pricing. I thought it was a fantastic way of putting it. And in going, because if you got the mindset chunk, which you, you, you addressed, so then there's like, what, what do, what percentage of this problem do you see correlated to salespeople or the company having no freaking idea what problems they actually solve for the client and therefore not. So it's not, it's a a confidence thing on itself could be one thing, but it's not understanding like what the hell are they actually doing for their clients so they can go, you know, stand on that, that hill and be confident. Yeah. I think what you're kind of asking is, you know, what role does, you know, clear, uh, articulation, clear understanding of, and then articulation of your true value proposition. Mm-hmm. And how mm-hmm. does that influence our ability to ask for price? And the answer is, you know, that's everything really, because price doesn't depend on anything else but value. And so if we aren't clear on the value that we provide, we will always be underpaid. Um, but a secondary problem, and this is actually, I think the, the bigger issue, if we're clear on it, but can't communicate it, we will never be paid what we're worth. And, and why I say that's the bigger issue is it's, it's commonly the case, at least in the size companies that we work with, which are, again, these sort of small and medium-sized companies, they may be founder-led or, you know, it may be, may, maybe not. But in any case, there are certainly some people in the senior part of that organization that, that, that are ride or die for the brand, right? They get it. They know it. They love it. They breathe it. They can sell it to anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's when you get into the sort of rank and file of the salesperson that, that how they talk about, how they communicate, how they understand that brand promise and that value proposition can get watered down or inconsistent. And the reason that's so important is it's those folks that are the ones that are the standard bearer for the brand, right? And, you know, in other words, the, the pricing battle is not won by the generals drawing up the maps in the war room, right? It's won in hand-to-hand combat out there with the mm-hmm. customer. So mm-hmm. you've got to um, ensure that both in terms of their, their ability to understand, truly understand, and then articulate their value proposition, but then, you know, subsequently defend it, handle price mm-hmm. objections masterfully, negotiate from a place of strength is is really an under-focused on arena of business in my experience when they want to get better at pricing. They do something mm-hmm. like raise the price or let's think about our strategy, but they're not really arming the troops, so to speak. Yeah. You know where I saw that and I still see that is uh, 
in one in one of our divisions was managed IT services, and I still work with clients in the managed IT space today. And Casey, there's this uh, there's a bunch of these consultants, Gary Pika and Paul Dipple, and some of these people that are in this space, and they have like this like recipe for price per user, how much per month you're supposed to charge, and Honestly, I, I, like this is 10 years ago. I'm like, well, whatever. Like, it, like it's so great you can get that price, but they were. And you know what happened and how I actually saw what you're describing come into real life the wrong way, actually, was they, they were they were saying 150 bucks a user. And then you go get 150 bucks a user. But if you don't do that, which, again, because everybody was generally operating out of a, pre, of, of a place of fear, Casey, is they get it at 75 bucks a user or 100 bucks. You can't afford to pay the people that then are supposed to deliver what you want to deliver. So I was like locking in unprofitable, shitty cost structures with my shitty employees. It was like, great. Now we have to deliver crappy service because that's what I locked in. Right. And right. so like, I'm, I'm curious on the business model and how different business models could, could be impacted on this because like, and, and that's where this topic is the, the chicken or the egg is what I wrote down about yeah. professional services because like, you need to go get the extra pricing to pay the people more. But if you don't, it, like, it's this vicious cycle downward or upward. And I'm curious just on business models and how you see this concept. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, what I'm about to say applies for professional services firms, sure, but also SaaS constructions, um, manufacturing distribution, everybody who wants to get better at delivering whatever they deliver, the there's that chicken or the egg question. And I, I would I would. I don't know that I have a, a perfect answer for it. I would say that my belief is that pricing is the fuel, it's the funding engine for growth and growth, sustainability, improvement, quality, uh, retention mm-hmm. of talent. In other words, uh, a, one of the big problems as we're making pricing decisions, and especially as we're discounting in the face of pressure, is to is to fool ourselves into thinking like it's just one or two percent. You know, oh, it's it's just ten thousand dollars to get a million dollar deal, right? Or it's uh, just a hundred bucks on a ten thousand dollar order. This sounds so small. Or for goodness sakes, one or two dollars per hour on managed services, right? These mm-hmm. these very little numbers uh, seduce us into letting it go. But if you look at the impact of that on the bottom line, where if you're, I'm going to you know pick a random number out of the air. If you're a five percent you know, EBITDA company, then every percent of price lifts a 20 is a 20% improvement on EBITDA. So you're not robbing one or two or 5% of your, of your business and your growth and your sustainability and your ability to invest when you underprice, you're robbing 20 or 40 or a hundred percent of your ability to Mm -hmm. grow uh, and invest and improve in the sustainability. And, And the way I would put that is revenue is for vanity, profit is for sanity, right? So I believe that if you, if you put 1%, 2%, whatever the number is, some some modest percentage of your profitability into improving and you're mm-hmm. asking for more and then you're improving and you're asking for more. You cannot never improve. You cannot never get better. But the things that you can, you the things that can be paid for when we're willing to ask for what we're worth are extraordinary. And, and I think a ton of companies got caught with this very seriously when inflation went crazy, especially if they're in um, a, a heavily labor-based business, whether that be professional services or not, but certainly professional services where you're paying knowledge workers and all of a sudden wage inflation is 40%. Yep. Now, how do you, how do you keep, even keep up with that? And so, I think the uh, m- m- ask for more, ask for it faster, get it now. Don't mm-hmm. get yourself in the downward spiral. You cannot yeah, cost cut your way to profitable growth. The only way to do it, it is through it, is through the top line. 
It's so it's so true because then then you can afford to invest in the things that make you like in in like all the good things that cost a lot of money, which are the investments, provide the leverage to make more money. That's right. <laughs> so, That's right. Um, have you ever heard of the gentleman, uh, Tommy Tommy Mello? Huh. Um, he is a home service expert. I, I got to get you in touch with him because he's a he's in the garage door space. He's scaled his garage door company from two trucks to 150 million. Wow. Uh, in the last in the last uh, twelve years, but the reason I bring him up, Casey, is because when he sits down, he's got this like uh, garage door class where he like has all these garage door owners come in, and the the mindset. This goes back to what you're saying is people are like, how could you charge that much for your customers? And then he keeps asking people questions like this, and then he's like, how could you do that to your people? You can't pay your people well enough. They're not making retirement plans. And it was like, he goes, you can watch everybody just go, holy crap. I didn't understand the implications. Yeah, you're like starving you said, they, your business. Mm -hmm. how, how are you then, like when you take this pricing uh, and, and philosophy, when there, let's say there were actual constraints from cash flow issues or like contribution margin, and I, we don't have to get into the major technical weeds here, but like when you're looking at like, different like when you're taking the data approach to it because we covered kind of like the mindset and and the abundance versus scarcity but when you have the data approach how do you what are some decision trees that you would suggest people think about because cash flow is super important because you got margins because if people only focus on margin might not necessarily yield in cash that ability for that so there's certain constraints that might actually be there that might hinder or impact the pricing yeah uh, it's a, it's a very interesting and very common question. And I get this a lot relative to contribution margin. Hey, we have excess capacity. Shouldn't we take on work? All the kind of financial, <laughs> which are just excuses, right? Yeah, for people to yeah. try <laughs> all the financial <laughs> kind of downstream effects of making various decisions. And I'll, I'll keep it very simple and it's, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it simple. There are two times to ask for more price when you can and when you must. Now, let me explain a little bit. Okay, because this is uh, this is the answer to your question, but I want to make it clear why I think this is the answer. Yeah, let's start with the second of those. When you must, if you are not making any money, if you are not profitable, if you do not have sufficient cash, if you if you are existentially facing a threat to your business, and you sh you can and probably are looking at every angle for that, right? What can I do? It's a triage slash emergency, you know, mode for the business, and one one lever to pull that should be pulled and it almost certainly will have a bigger impact than almost anything else you can do. And it's probably easier to pull, you know, versus slashing half your, your staff or something, go ask for 5% more. So that's the, when you must now mm -hmm. this, this, when you must is sort of a, um, it's the Hail Mary, right? Because that's mm -hmm. this, if that's the situation you're in and a Hail Mary doesn't always work. In other words, the customer doesn't necessarily pay it just because you need it. Right. And your confidence is probably not on top when you're, <laughs> well, and if I you're truly know. faking, you might before, be faking it. I said to you before <laughs> we started the call, desperation makes a powerful motivator. So maybe, <laughs> maybe. Yes. but, but so that, that is the one that I believe is really, is truly rooted in your current financial performance and constraints. And it doesn't, and it still doesn't mean you can get it for sure, but, but that's what you got to do. Right. The other one is the far more common and the far more important one to the answer, the question you asked, which is when you can. When you can ask for more has nothing to do with your margins, nothing to do with your cash flow, nothing to do with your capacity, nothing to do with your plans for growth. Your customers don't care if your margins are 2% or 99%. They don't care if you have $2 of cash in the bank or $2 billion in cash in the bank. They care about value. And it is such a common, I would say, in my opinion, it is an error to 
to make pricing decisions based on financial performance, not based on value. The reason it's an error is it almost always leads to underpricing because we are very satisfied with, oh, 40 margin on this deal is pretty good. Well, 40 is good unless it could be 50. Like there is not a number where we sort of top out at, and this is very commonly a a conversation we get into with sales teams that it's somehow greedy or gouging, or there's such a thing as too much, too much money, too much margin. Mm -hmm. I say, Mm -hmm. look, if they are buying something from you at 80 part, uh, 80 points of margin, then the value you provide to them is so extraordinary that it's still a hell yes from them. Right? Mm -hmm. Like if, if, Mm -hmm. if the value isn't there, they won't buy it. Don't mm-hmm. want the, how do I know none of your customers care about margin? None of them have ever called you up and said, Ryan, this, uh, this copier is too expensive. What do you have more in the 18% margin range? Right? Like that's never happened. <laughs> that's like, awesome. Yeah, no, history. I totally agree. But we get yeah. it, whether it be cash flow or margin or contribution, margin, gross margin, whatever, whatever thing we're looking at is our metric for success. It's often leads us to make decisions that lead us to underprice. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and in other words, a, some version of a cost plus approach that is, uh, favors the bottom feeders. Um, the people that oh, aren't you just describe my whole old industry, Casey, the cost plus we, the year we sold, we lost a large deal where we were four. someone was 400 grand below our cost. That was like the race to the bottom of the entire industry is like, screw this shit. I mean, it was just gross. And like, and it, that's the whole industry. And like, it, it just, so I'm going to like, I, I'm going to kind of switch, switch over into this random alley here that's is what, what do you, what do you think about the role that venture capital plays in supply chains? Cause I read this article last year about like how VC, because they don't have to care about making the money and actually making profit, how screwed up they've actually made, made some supply chains. Have hmm. you seen that will often send you the article at a different point. It was, it was about Uber eats and stuff, Casey, where it was like, Hey, this one part of this entire link of this chain does not have to make money. And it screws everything up, which is super fascinating. just so like I said, more of like a side alleyway. But, um, so when you, when, when the, when the, when, when the, as a business owner coming from the operational perspective and you're sitting there like from the actual conference room, I know it's all the battles are won on the, on the, on the ground floor, but how do you approach pricing from an overall company perspective, whether it's divisions, service lines? I mean, how do you start thinking about that? Uh, there's a, that's a big question. We could talk for an hour or a day or a week on that one question. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say a tongue in cheek answer that sounds like a joke, but it's not. Um, just charge more for all of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, and, and the reason I say that is I have yet to ever, and I've been doing, I've been in this game, a you know, couple decades and a half, uh, yet to run into a business ever, no matter how well run. And I've worked with some incredible businesses that didn't have some pricing opportunity and maybe quite a lot. And so at least in some areas of your business and probably in most all the areas of the business, there's some pricing power. So, you know, simple, quick, dirty, ugly option is raise everything X percent, right? Plenty of people have had a lot of practice at that over the past couple of years. Teams are getting, you know, a little war torn. They've passed along their fifth or sixth or seventh price increase. Their, you know, their confidence is in the toilet. Uh, what I would say is no one, not one business in the world, not one business owner in the world is shocked when some one of their vendors calls them up and says the prices are going up again, right? We don't like it, but we are numb to it. And that window will close. So I believe that there still is a, um, for most industries, um, 
there is still some opportunity to kind of be on that inflationary wave. Now we're staring down the, you know, barrel of a re- of a coming recession and there's some sort of signs of market softening in some sectors already and so that is going to kind of crash into that inflation. Even as inflation is projected to continue, we're going to start to see pies shrinking, wallets snapping shut, projects Mm -hmm. going on pause, things like that. So that's going to really affect the demand. When that happens, competitors are going to get desperate because we know people don't always act rationally. And even rationally, some of them are going to conclude that the best thing to do is just to start to you know, grab for scraps of that shrinking pie. Uh, and mm-hmm. the, the job of a, of a seasoned and effective business leader, especially in a best in class or better in class position in the market, if you're a premium in any way in your quality or service is not to, not to jump into that fray in a way that, mm-hmm. that promotes a price war. Uh, in other words, mm-hmm. don't grab for a falling knife. So some of what mm-hmm. I just said, or a lot of what I just said, really relates to kind of our current economic condition and the opportunity that presents to still go grab a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. That is sort of topically relevant right now. The more evergreen answer to what I just, um, to the question you just asked is, the more granular we are in our pricing decision-making, the more money we make. The more the more one size fits all we are, the less money we make because our decision making settle, settles around the most price sensitive stuff we sell and the biggest bullies on our customer list. Um, mm. And so uh, the more granular we are, the more money we make. And this includes a price increase strategy, by the way. You know, somebody says, oh, we just raised our rates by four dollars an hour. Well, for every customer that would pay you four, that you could actually get that through, some other customers would pay you six and some would pay you eight and some would pay you 10. And so a segmented approach to pricing is the answer to, is is the simple strategic answer to um, price gain without mm-hmm. volume loss. That's it's super fascinating. And I'm curious, like on the role of the data in this process. And the reason I'm saying that is it's coming from um, my perspective over the last 15 years, Casey, we're like, because sometimes I had actually lacked that confidence, whether it was like, as I was starting this business nine years ago, I actually didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> so that was one of the main problems. We've already covered the messaging. But then, you know, in my old business, it was like, it was more of a commodity, whatever it might be. But what I found useful from my perspective was that the more information I had about why I needed to do something, then it was able, it was, I was able to communicate it a little bit easier and I didn't feel sheepish or whatever. So I kind of leaned on data as like a crutch, but like not, not a bad crutch maybe, but like, uh, does that make sense? And I'm curious on like how you, how you see that playing into people's process. Yeah. Um, so I thought you were going somewhere totally different with that question. So I'm Tell me where you thought I was going. Tell me where you thought I was going. If you're willing to let me indulge in answering a question you didn't ask, then I'll do that next. But let me start yeah, with no, the totally. one. Totally, I love it. Because <laughs> uh, I was like, okay. oh, I got this one. Okay, so your <laughs> your question really is rooted in when it's time to whether it be a price increase or being more firm and not discounting or whatever it is, the strength of your position uh, with your customers, uh, in, at least at least in your mind and, and probably in reality, was rooted in some part in. Um, being able to justify this with some, you know, third-party information, indices, raw material costs, labor market doing X, Y, Z, that mm. you can kind of point to something that isn't like, I, Ryan, would like to make more money, so please give me more, that that made it easier for you and more successful for you to ask it. Is that what you're asking me about? 
Yeah, and as you're saying as you're saying that, I could immediately just let me see if this is how you'd answer it, is figure out what the hell value you provide, Ryan, and then then go justify the value. Don't who cares about the third party bullshit. <laughs> so so yes, and did I answer that? Did I answer yeah, that in yeah. the Casey fashion? Maybe not the maybe not the swear word. <laughs> yeah, well, so uh, so I'm a truck driver's daughter. The fact that I haven't dropped an, dropped an f bomb yet is uh, pretty. I'm, I'm congratulating myself pretty hard right now. So I, I think that. That, what your self-corrected course there that you just announced is is part of the answer to that. But there are times, and I think we've been living through one for sure for the past couple of years, where a some element of justifying price, uh, especially because we're having to go to the well over and over again, and for very large increases, being able to point to the you know independently verified justification for why you have to do this, AKA point to the price of steel or whatever, or, you know, um, freight and other things. I think it is appropriate. I don't think it's never okay or never appropriate to kind of lean on the, you know, to use your word, the crutch of cost. Uh, I think it is appropriate. Sometimes here's, here's a very important caution. Don't only lean on cost. Don't only lean on what's happening to the cost structure as the justification for, for value or for a price increase. And I'll, I'll tell you uh, why for mm-hmm. two reasons. One is, especially if you're in an industry where costs will go down again, like something related to freight or related to steel or something else, it's not going to happen with labor. Ah, but if you're in an industry yeah. where prices go back down, you're making yourself very vulnerable to them coming right back immediately and knocking on your door for that money back. The second reason, and this is actually the more important reason, is I think if you tell your customer that the only reason they should pay you more is for the cost of your inputs, you're essentially admitting that there's no value that you provide. You're reducing mm-hmm. yourself to mm-hmm. a accumulation of inputs as if that's the only reason you're valuable to them. And I think that's a really dangerous mm-hmm. message to send. And, uh, you know, a story I tell on mm-hmm. that one is Michelangelo was paid um, 3,000 ducats for the Sistine Chapel, which was like a half a million dollars. None of that had anything to do with the cost of paints and brushes, right? So, don't uh, if you're if you're Michelangelo, you know it's okay to say, hey, my paint price, mm-hmm. you know, is going up, and that means, but also I'm freaking Michelangelo, you know, and I painted the Sistine Chapel, so <laughs> yeah, I've been I'm at this for thirty five, yeah, thirty five yeah, years. So, so yep, I think yep, being yep. being willing and able to say, here's what's happening with costs. That's part of our our our. But also in the past year and a half, since the last time you know we spoke about price, we've also invested in four new customer service reps, and we've upgraded our CR or our you know our. Um, our Mm -hmm. uh, point of sale system. And we've done this and this basically like talk about how they're experiencing more value than they used to. So can I ask the question? Yeah. I was going to say, you got me dying of curiosity. (laughs) Well, now I'm a little nervous. Like what if I built it up too much? It's not even that good. Um, I uh, Uh, go for it on the heels of me. You asked that question on the heels of me talking about the importance of being more segmented, right. And getting more granular Mm -hmm. in our approach or as I call it, the riches are in the niches. And then you started talking about data and, and where, what I thought you were going to ask and what I am commonly asked is what role can data play in helping us make better decisions, especially as it pertains to things like, you know, a segmentation or a price increase. And I'm a big believer mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Uh, a, a risk mitigated approach because I live in the real world. It's easy for me to sit here on my, you know, on my throne and say, thou shalt raise prices 
Um, but you're, you know, anybody, you and anybody else listening to this um, has to f- contend with the real risk of volume loss from from a price action. And so I'm a huge fan of the idea of, of risk mitigated increases rooted in, in some very simple analytics. And, you know, things like if you, you know, did a Pareto analysis of your customers and it's always the top, you know, one, two, three, five percent that make up the top 20 percent of the volume, right? There's an 80, 20 rule idea. So, you know, a super simple example, just for purposes of the podcast is if you're, you know, your bottom, you know, 50% of your customers only make up 5% of your revenue, get bold there, you know, get aggressive there, start mm-hmm. there. It's so crazy. Casey is, I, um, we have some of our CFOs doing this customer analysis for people and we got some people, it's so crazy how tried and true that Pareto principle is. Like we had this one client, I mean, too recently we're like, thousands, like four or 5,000 clients. And it was literally like 800 that are providing 90% of a $30 million company. And then the rest, think how many resources they consume. It's so crazy. Well, what's, what really fries people about this once their eyes are open to it is, you know, what they're typically looking at there is some gross margin, you know, impact from those two, you know, that 80% of customer count that makes up you know, 7% of your customer volume. It's not just the gross margin. Like I think at the margin there is such a miss because you're not looking at all the other costs to serve elements, right? Just even things like generating an invoice, mm-hmm. processing the invoice, processing the payment, having someone from AP call them and say, hey, you haven't paid us on time. Um, that Setting them up in your customer systems. That mm-hmm. There's so many things. There's so many touch points with every customer and so many hidden costs to serve. They're frankly being willing to, uh, walk away from the tail. A lot of companies get a lot more profitable. And I and my counsel is not necessarily walk away from the tail, but let them opt in or out at a very high 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 margin, right? Like they, some of them may go. A lot of them will stick around and pay you for the privilege of being tiny. So th- that that mm-hmm. is one you know one it. element. The Pareto is one one tool, but the idea is to use some simple analytics to steer our efforts. Uh, Jim Collins talks about in his book, uh, Bullets Before Cannons, right? So like, where are the easiest Mm -hmm. uh, places to take action that present the least risk that generate the biggest impact? And so I like to kind of rinse my decision-making or help our clients rinse their decision-making through that lens of, as you map this, what data, what data points to this is low risk, either because it's very, very sticky, or they're uh, tiny, and they don't represent a lot of risk individually, if a couple of them go or, or, or whatever else. And I think that can be another mm-hmm. confidence builder that says we, you know, we, we aren't going after the whales right now, we're starting here, we're going to build our confidence that the market will bear this, and then we're going to start to expand out from there. I love it. it, it I feel like I kind of have an idea how you'd answer this given this conversation already, but um, I, product pricing fit when you're launching a new product or if it's a new company that's trying to test out the marketplace when there might not be an obvious answer of even like where the pricing should fall in or maybe even like what value, even if someone wants to value price, what value they might actually be delivering. How do you, how do you approach that? Uh Educated guessing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that the bullets, right? That's kind of what. I, it's not uncommon, right? It, either because you're you're branching into a new marketplace, 
um, you know, there's there's three different kinds of of new new products or new services that it could be, and it, you kind of have to understand your starting point of your launch position. It's revolutionary, evolutionary, or me too, right? If you're if you're launching the, a me too product or in a me, you know, you're you're going to be a me too in a new market for you. There's already plenty of data out there about what the market will bear. That's less of the the issue. The other one is mm-hmm. this is a brand new, totally blue ocean, wildly innovation. Um, innovative solution, or it's it's an improvement on something that already exists. These are often easier to make some good, smart first guesses on because we can make some mm-hmm. estimates on the on how customers might value our improvements. It's this first one that's really mm-hmm. hard, like uh, you know the first car for sale, right? Like what the heck do you charge for a car, right? You say, well, horses need this much hay. I mean, it's so it's so hard to use data, right, right, to to make a decision like that. And so I think that um, it's it's inevitably going to be a guess and test game. Um, that said, and I actually I have some blogs I wrote on this very topic, and I'll I'll share the uh, the links with you, and you can I don't know if you do you do show notes. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Great. Yep. We'll put all the, the show notes. Yep. But but I think that one of the most common mistakes that people make with new products and services is to underprice them, and because they're not sure, and because it's not proven yet, and they oper- they do that in this sort of like land and expand model, right? Like we're going to, we're going to get out there and, and, and start to prove our value. I actually, I, I have to do this Casey for the, for the listeners in, I'm putting up a book called free. <laughs> it's, it's about software as a service and platform software, the future of radical pricing free. Yeah. So Casey, what do you feel about this? book? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole nother hour too, man. I got to come back on. Um, so, so the, you know, the idea, if we undercharge for it, but we get adoption, then, then we're going to be in a position to charge appropriately later. And I would say, and there are industries where this is easier and industries where it's harder, but it's always harder than anybody thinks to actually gain price once you've habituated your customer base to it being something down here, right? Some lower, so some lower number. I believe that for that revolutionary product, that starting out much higher and having some mechanisms by which you can drive adoption and induce trial uh, are much better. And so there's things, you know, education campaigns and, you know, other kinds of things that you can do. You can also do promotional pricing that doesn't cause the same harm as starting out of the gate at too low of a price. So in other words, Ooh, I like that for I'm making this up for the first 300 customers that buy this, uh, it's 50% off. Right. And if those first 300 sell out in five seconds, then guess what? The market is giving you a strong signal that it's super valuable. And aren't you glad you didn't price it half as much. If that's a soft, slow, sluggish start, then guess what? Your promotional price suddenly becomes your permanent price. And now you know where customers value you. But you can create some structural um, pricing designs out of the gate that allow you to say, this is what our stuff costs. And we're willing to sell it here Mm -hmm. as some kind of promotional effort to, to induce trial, but it doesn't set the expectation and the entitlement in the customer base that that price is low. It's really important how you design that. I love, yeah, I love how you said that. What are your thoughts about like 
the kind of the shenanigan bullshit that people play of like this course is two thousand dollars and you get it for four ninety nine or like dollar four dollars yeah, right. ninety nine like, right. oh, every time I look at that is nine hundred bucks, but today only it's twenty three dollars. <laughs> like okay. Well yeah. <laughs> so you 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 use two words that I would think are very appropriate, bullshit and shenanigans, right? In other words, it's a game. Yep. It's a it's a gimmick, and there are lots of companies, businesses, retailers doing it. I I, I call this the Kohl's effect, right? If you've ever been in a Kohl's, like a hundred percent of the items in Kohl's are on sale, right? And I go up and check out, and you know, I look at my receipt and it says you saved two hundred eighty seven dollars at Kohl's today, and you're like, I bought a candle and a tank top. Coles, I am on to you, right? <laughs> In other words, I don't think anybody is fooled by games. I don't think they make anybody feel better. I think they make people feel worse. I think it hurts trust. I think it sends a dangerous message around, you know, kind of slimy behavior. So by and large, my advice, and, and granted, I'm not saying never do a sale or never do a promotion or never contemplate how to induce people to to buy from you by using price as a tool this can be done but be cautious about the games you're asking your customers to play and and this is the important bit what it tells them about your brand are you if you want to be the budget brand the economy brand the discount brand i think those games are more common and don't hurt the brand if you're trying to be a brand Mm -hmm. where people are like Holy shit, if you want the best, go to those guys. If you're trying to be the Nordstroms or the Tiffany's of your of your space, don't price like Walmart, you know? So mm-hmm. that's what I mm-hmm. say about I think you, you you the word the word that would no, and I love it. And I think I, if I were to take one word out of that entire comment is the trust. Because we all know what the hell's going on, right? So you immediately discredit yourself. So you have no confidence to stand on because everybody doesn't believe you anyway. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, and as we're getting close to the wrap up here, Casey, what I think is super fascinating about this entire uh, concept and then just kind of like I, the more macro view of some of the topics we talk about a lot on the show is I have people that I know, clients or people that have been on the show that they use this philosophy and strategy as they're going and looking at acquisitions and they're pricing the acquisition, going, look at these people. They haven't raised prices forever. They understand the wiggle room of what that gap is. And actually, Tommy Mello, I mean, this is how he scaled from two trucks to to 550 employees. He's like, I know in 18 months, that's what he said on the show. And he's like, I know in 18 months, this company will kick out just like this much cash because I know exactly how to price yeah. it. And it's just super fascinating because it's you're not going to like this is so detrimental, Casey, because it's not just the profit and the cash flow you're talking about, but it's the actual cash flow and the multiple. Like this is like exponentially worse when you go to sell because someone's going to take all of the work that you did and do some of these things and make all the money that you did. 100 percent. 100%. I, and I think, uh, and I'm, for, I'm forgetting the details of the quote, but I think Buffett said something, Warren Buffett said something like, if you have a business with pricing power, you've got to get business. If you have to have a prayer session before you ask for a 10% price increase, you have a terrible business. So I, I might be getting that a little bit wrong, but paraphrased, it's very similar to that. And, and the reason that I think that's so interesting as it pertains to the space of private equity or, or venture capital or, you know, selling your business and, and what you're, what you're able to earn on exit 
one of the most important things that that buying um, organizations like a PE firm are looking for is unexercised pricing power, because then they can just come right in, raise the rates, and mm-hmm. just print money. And what I would say to a to a founder or an owner, or anybody looking to sell a business at some point in the future, you might as well print it for yourself first, then sell, then sell it and sell it for higher multiples too. Totally, 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 totally. Exclamation part, underline all that. And I think what's what the, what the you you we started it as we we're wrapping up. But I think a good good place to kind of put the book in is it, the founder. It's the confidence where I I've seen with our clients or myself. My experience is the founder knows the customers a lot of the time, which is also the problem, which is also a discount in the value. So that's a whole different topic. But like. The private equity firm goes, oh, this is now my company, and I know none of them. And by the way, here's the price increase because, like, they don't have to go to church or whatever and see those people. So it's just a whole different. To prove your point, like it's, it, and it's it happens anyways. Yeah. So it's uh, it's very fascinating. Is there so as we're getting close to wrapping up here, Casey? Like the first question: Is there anything that I'm asking? Or is there anything that I'm not asking that I should? Oh my gosh. I mean, this is my favorite topic and I could go on like this for days. So I could answer a lot of things, but I think you've asked a lot of great questions and, um, and I've had a lot of fun. So no, not nothing specific right now. So then my question for you would be is, uh, the name of the podcast is intentional growth. Love the, I've asked now, I think it's like 200 and some people what the word intentional means to them. And I'd love to hear your definition of what intentional means. Great question. I would say operating from clarity and values. Ooh, that was good. So succinct. I'm definitely not as succinct as you are. I could definitely take <laughs> some pointers. Um, the place to find you, your pricing calculator, all the videos, what's the best place? So our website is www.boostpricing.com uh, and you can find me on LinkedIn as well. And that's where I'm actually publishing like a lot of my content and my videos and my, and my blogs as well. Uh, Casey Brown boost is my, uh, is my handle on LinkedIn, Casey Brown boost. Uh, so uh, boostpricing.com and Casey Brown boost. Casey, this has been a pleasure. I had a blast. That hour went really fast. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, It was a delight. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. I don't know about you, but I think there's two questions. When are you going to increase your prices and by how much? Those are the two things that I've learned out of this. And I think we all should really reflect and get out of our own head because I, I know that I've struggled with the mindset of like, hey, are we bringing the, the value and always trying to increase the value without increasing our prices? So I think that Casey helped us address our mindset, address when and how to use the data, address the time, when are we going to do this and by how much? So I, I just, I don't know, think about it, go back to your team, listen to this podcast again. The only thing that I would say at from the Arcona side is if you need help on your data and your numbers, reach out to us, go to schedule a discovery call. Or if you just wanted to learn more about how the overall company financials work and how to actually assess the things like contribution margin, cash flow, normalized EBITDA, and how pricing impacts all that stuff, don't forget to go check out the Intentional Growth Boot Camp. It's May 11th and 12th, Orlando, Florida. It's $5,000 for the first ticket, half off for additional tickets after that. We're about halfway full. We cap out at 25 people. So go check it out. If you have any questions about the discovery call or the pod or the discovery call or the boot camp, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm happy to help. I want you to make sure that you are learning what you need to learn and getting the information that you need so that way you can 
grow your company to hit that target equity valuation to make it all worth it. So appreciate everybody tuning in and I will see you next week.